man who was born blind, whose eyes Jesus opened, and who gave a great witness, the the man did, to the Pharisees. And uh, they kicked him out of the temple. And so we pick up the story in verse 35. There should be an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages at both exits. You can um, grab those and follow along either now or later if you like. And those are also on the church website. The last 22 years worth of uh, messages are there if you want to go back and, and read those or listen to them. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out, meaning out of the temple. And finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Probably there it should be read, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We're not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. I think we've all heard the uh, good news, bad news jokes, and uh, here, here are a couple of them that um, are aimed at me as a pastor. Uh, one of them, the good news, the Women's Guild voted to send you a get well card. The bad news, the vote was 31 to 30. Or the good news, attendance has risen dramatically in the last three weeks. The bad news, you were on vacation. That's pretty much true, I think. I was on vacation last week, and attendance was up. So maybe there's something to learn there. I don't know. Well, I share those because our text gives us some good news and some bad news. But I need to say, this is no joke. This is deadly serious because it affects our eternal destiny. The best possible news, the good news, the greatest news, in one word, is Jesus. But here's the bad news. Jesus. You say, what? How can Jesus be bad news? Well, Jesus is the best possible news for those who hear the gospel, for those whom he opens their blind eyes and they believe in him because they receive eternal life as a free gift. That's the greatest news in the whole world. But Jesus is bad news for many others because they reject his gift of sight. They come under judgment and uh, face eternal judgment because they did not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So what I'm saying is Jesus is is like a, a fork in the road. He always divides people. He always divides people. Those who believe in him receive eternal life. Those who reject him are hardened in their unbelief and eventually face eternal punishment. And there's no third category. There are only two two categories. 
those who believe and are saved, those who reject him and are condemned. And so your response to Jesus and the message about Jesus is the most important matter that is conceivable. So we come to the conclusion then of this story of Jesus healing this man who was born blind. And as we've seen, this miracle was performed on the Sabbath, deliberately, I am sure. And because of that, it caused a division among the Pharisees that we saw in verse 16. Some said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others of the Pharisees argued, well, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? Now, the first group prevailed over the second group, as seen in the fact that just a few months later, they would succeed in crucifying the Lord of glory, crucifying Jesus. Um, But they couldn't refute the logic of this blind man, and in their frustration, they just kicked him out of the temple or the synagogue. And our text picks up the story when Jesus finds this rejected man and he asks him a crucial question to bring him to solid faith. And the story then concludes by uh, contrasting the blind man's faith in Jesus with the hard hearts of these unbelieving Pharisees. And the lesson is that Jesus came to give sight to the spiritually blind but also to bring those who think they see without him to judgment. Or let me just quote Jesus, because I just got that idea right out of verse 39. In verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. So our text falls into two sections. In verses 35 to 38, you have the blind see. And then in verses 35, or 39 to 41, you have the seen blind. First, let's look at the blind see. And we see here that Jesus came to give sight to the spiritually blind. Jesus heard that the Pharisees had put this man out of the temple And that was a serious matter in that society, as I explained a few weeks ago. Um, It it meant total social isolation for a person. And that was a tight society. Uh, It meant that his neighbors would shun him because they didn't want to get in trouble with the religious police. Even though now the man, since he could see, he could no longer beg, and he could for the first time in his life work, but he couldn't get a job because no one's going to hire someone who's been excommunicated from the uh, temple and the religious system. Even those in the marketplace would be hesitant to do business with him if he tried to start his own business and sell his wares or even to buy things in the marketplace. They wouldn't want to deal with him. So he's an outcast. And maybe at this time, as he's just standing outside of the temple in bewilderment trying to figure out What just happened? I just got disfellowshipped from Israel. Jesus finds him. Jesus finds him, and he asks him what is, I believe, the most important question in the entire world. Verse 35, do you believe in the Son of Man? If you have a King James Bible or a New King James, it reads the Son of God, but 
scholars are pretty much unanimous. That is not the original reading. Uh, Son of man is strongly supported. Um, Five lessons I want to bring out from verses 35 to 38. First of all, would you note that Jesus takes the initiative by seeking those who are blind. Finding him in verse 35 implies Jesus was looking for him. And that's very much in line with what our Savior said in Luke 19.10 when he said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He is a seeker of those who are lost. So the religious crowd had rejected this poor man. He was an outcast from society. And at that very moment, Jesus goes looking for that one lost sheep. And he brings him to solid faith by asking him this question, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The former blind man asked in verse 36, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And as I explained in reading the text, there's one Greek word, kure, kurios, that can be translated either Lord or sir, and you have to figure it out from the context. Since this man didn't yet, in verse 36, know who Jesus was to believe in him, I think it's best there to translate it, sir. Who who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? But then, down in verse 37, or excuse me, verse 38, he has recognized Jesus. And so there, I think it's properly translated, Lord, I believe. But... Anyway, Jesus' reply to his question, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, must have thrilled his soul. You notice what Jesus says, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. That was quite a statement to a man who had never seen until that day. He had seen very few people. He'd seen a few. He'd gone back to his neighbors and seen them for the first time. But for Jesus to say, you have seen him, and he's the one talking to you, and as you know, blind people have an acute sense of hearing, he surely recognized, that's the man who commanded me to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, and he recognized Jesus, and he instantly believed in him. But the Bible repeatedly stresses a truth that I'm drawing out of here, um, And uh, I could support it from many, many, many verses. And that is that if you believe in Jesus, it's not because one day you got the bright idea, I think I'll go looking for God and believe in Jesus. The Bible's clear. No one seeks for God. Rather, the Bible says, God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. He chose you. And he sought you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And he, he raised you from spiritual death. He imparted saving faith to you. That's a paraphrase of Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And so our salvation, as Paul says there in Ephesians 1, 6, our salvation is to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. And that's the whole point of the doctrine of election, which a lot of people don't like, but they should, because it's a question of who gets the glory for your salvation. 
See, if of your own free will and your own mental ability you came up with the idea to believe in Jesus, then guess what? You can share the glory and say, I had a part in it, and that's bad. That's really bad. No, I was lost in sin, and I would still be lost in sin, but praise God, he intervened in my life, and he gets all the glory. So you see why that doctrine is so important? Jesus came seeking for you and me. Secondly, notice that Jesus alone has the power to open blind eyes. I mean, opening blind eyes is a God thing, is it not? It's just not something that we can do. And the blind man, the former blind man, pointed this out to the Pharisees in verse 32 and 33. He says to them, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And uh, Jesus' dialogue at the, at the end of the chapter with these Pharisees shows this was more than just a miracle. It was a miracle that is a parable of salvation. It's a miracle about God opening the eyes of those who are spiritually blind And just as opening the eyes of the physically blind is something that only God can do, so opening the eyes of the spiritually blind is something that only God can do. He can, he he and only he can impart spiritual sight to those who are in spiritual darkness. Now, certainly, as we'll see in just a moment, sinners have to believe in Jesus. But my point is, they cannot believe in Jesus just by exercising their own free will. We saw that back in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, where it says, but to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God, or the right, the authority, exousia, to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. But where did that come from? Well, he goes on, who were born not of blood, that is, it's not a thing of being born a Jew, Uh, nor of the will of the flesh. It's not a a matter of your parents deciding that they would have a Christian child, nor of the will of man. It's not a matter of your deciding it. How did it happen? But of God. It's a God thing. There's another text that brings this out also with the analogy of light and darkness, and that's in 2 Corinthians 4, where in verse 4, Paul mentions that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So unbelievers are out there just in total darkness, spiritually. Well, then how do we gain spiritual sight? Well, Paul explains that in verse 6. He says, For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, he's referring to Genesis 1-4 there where God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so Paul is saying that just as God had to be the power that spoke light into existence in Genesis 1, so he is the power who speaks light into dark hearts, darkened eyes, and our eyes come open And that's what happens when he saves our soul. So the first lesson here is Jesus takes the initiative 
in our salvation, and he alone has the power to do it, to open blind eyes. But thirdly, uh, we have a part in this sense to move from spiritual blindness to sight. Admit you're blind. That's the first part. Admit you're blind. Now, of course, this man had no problem when he was blind admitting he was blind. That, that was obvious. Uh, but the proud Pharisees are the point here. They thought that they were the only ones in Israel who had spiritual sight. And you can see that in their arrogant comment in verse 34 to this man. You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? You know, like, you're an ignoramus. We're the, we're the educated ones. We know. And so they're, they're reveling in what they think they know. And then... Um, In verse 40, they sarcastically say to Jesus, We are not blind too, are we? That question expects a a negative answer. And Jesus replies in verse 41, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. In other words, if they would have admitted their blindness, Jesus would have healed them. They would be forgiven and have no guilt, no sin before God. But since they insisted that they could see in their pride and their self-righteousness, they remained in their sins. And you know, that pharisaical attitude, I am convinced, is probably the most prevalent reason that people do not get saved. They think there's something in themselves that is worthy of salvation, that they can contribute to their own salvation. Go out on the street, even go over to the jail and ask people, um, you know, how how do you think you get into heaven? Well, by being a good person. Uh Uh-huh. And I I remember once in California, I I was asked to go visit a guy in, in the hospital who was a bartender at the worst bar in town where there were always brawls and fights and Everything and, and as I was talking to him, I found out he was totally alienated from his family, didn't even know where his kids were living. Uh, you know, he'd been a bartender and uh, that all, all of his adult life. He was just a rough man. And then I asked him, well, how do you think you will go to heaven when you die? And he said, well, I'm a good person. I'm a basically good person. And that's the stock answer you'll get out there. I'm a good person. I mean, I don't kill little kids like these terrorists over in in the Middle East, you know. And uh, I, I'm a decent guy. And so they minimize their sins. And rather than saying, you know, I am helpless, I am blind, what they're saying is, I just need a pair of bifocals. You know, just a little help, and I can see fine, thanks. And that's not the biblical truth. The biblical truth is we're all blind. We're all helpless. Remember the old hymn, Rock of Ages? Here's how it put it. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. So the first thing to move from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight is to say, God, I'm blind. I'm a sinner. I I need you to open my eyes. And then, fourthly, 
to move from spiritual blindness to sight, believe in Jesus for who he is. Jesus' question to this formerly blind man is, as I said, the most important question you can ever answer. Do you believe in the Son of Man? There is no more important question. And you're going to answer that question either in this life or at the judgment, but then it will be too late. You have to answer that question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Your eternal destiny hinges on that, on the right answer to that question. So how do you answer it rightly? Well, there are three other questions you have to answer to answer that question. The first one is the one this man asks, who is the Son of Man? Verse 36, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And that question parallels Jesus' question, remember, to the 12 in Matthew 16, 15. He said, who do you say that I am? That is life's most crucial question. And here's why it's important. There are many people today who say they believe in Jesus, but they believe in a false Jesus, the cults. They don't believe in the Jesus revealed in the Bible. That's like saying, I believe that this little bottle that I got from the pharmacist will cure me. And in fact, the pharmacist made a horrible mistake. And that bottle is not the right prescription. It's poison. You can believe that all day long. And if you take it, it won't make you well. It'll kill you. Because faith is only as good as its object. You can believe in a faulty airplane and get on board. It's going to crash. See, your faith doesn't determine the, the, the uh, trustworthiness of the object. It has to be a trustworthy object to put your faith in. And so if you believe in a false Jesus, you can't be saved any more than if you believe in an idol because that's what a false Jesus is. It's an idol. And so you have to ask this question, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Now the title, Son of Man, is used over 80 times in the Gospels, uh, 12, including 12 times in the uh, Gospel of John, plus four other times in the New Testament. And almost always it occurs on the lips of Jesus speaking about himself. It was not a common or widely accepted messianic term in Jesus' day. And I think that may be one reason he used it, because the Jews had this political idea of Messiah. He would deliver them from Rome He would be the great politician. Jesus did not want to uh, mistakenly get forced into that role. And so it was a way of both alluding to and yet veiling the truth of his Messiahship. But it shows Jesus to be the representative man, the last Adam, uh, and it has nuances, therefore, of humanity. But also, at the same time, and I think this is why Jesus used it, It has overtones of deity because every Jew would have linked Son of Man with Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Uh, They knew their Bibles. And in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, Daniel sees one, he says, like a Son of Man who comes up to the Ancient of Days and he receives a kingdom that is without end. Well, to receive an eternal kingdom, he's got to be an eternal being And it is clear that it is Jesus and that he is eternal. There's an interesting use of the term at Jesus' trial before the high priest. In Matthew 26, 63, the high priest says, 
I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, Jesus, you know, has been silent at his trial up to this point, but he can't be silent there. He is under oath from the living God to answer, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And his answer is, you have said it yourself, nevertheless. And here he alludes to Daniel 7. I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He is saying, I am that eternal being that Daniel saw in that vision. And in John's gospel, the term is always uh, associated either with Christ's heavenly glory or with the salvation that he came to bring. Uh, D.A. Carson, who is one of the leading New Testament scholars of our day, argues that in light of John's usage of the term, he says Jesus is inviting the man to put his trust in the one who is the revelation of God to man. Jesus himself is the word incarnate, the one who uniquely reveals God. And then Carson also points out that in John 5.27, Jesus uses the term son of man with regard to himself as judge. And that's exactly where this leads in verses 40 and 41 here, 39, 40, and 41 of our text. So the correct answer to the question then, who is the son of man is, he is the eternal word, who took on human flesh, as we saw in John 1.14. He offered himself as the sacrifice for our sins. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. He is the one lifted up, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, John 3.13. He is the one who died for our sins, who is risen from the dead, and one day he is coming again to judge all the living and the dead. He is the one in whom we must believe. The second question then you have to ask, if you've answered who is the Son of Man is, well then what does it mean to believe in him? Well, in a nutshell, it means you trust Jesus to do what he promised to do. Remember in John 4, he said to the woman, if you will ask, I'll give you living water. She asked, he gave. Then in John 4, the noble man says, Lord, come, my son is dying. And Jesus says, go, your son lives. He believed him. He went. And guess what? His son lived. Jesus did what he promised. Uh, To the blind man, he anoints him with this clay and says, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. He goes, he washes, he sees. Jesus keeps his word, his promise. And so to believe in him means you stop believing in yourself, in your own goodness, in anything in you to get you into heaven. And instead, you put your trust in Jesus and his death on the cross on your behalf, that that paid for your sins because God's word says so. And you trust him like you would trust a doctor. If a doctor gives you a prescription and says, this will cure whatever it is that's wrong with you, First of all, you have to trust him by going to the pharmacist and getting it fulfilled. And then you trust the pharmacist that he gives you the right prescription. And then you don't take it home and set it on a shelf. You take the prescription. Or to use another analogy, uh, if you're going to fly somewhere, you have to trust the pilot by actually getting on the plane. If you don't do that, 
you won't get anywhere. You can stand on the uh, runway all day saying, I believe that plane will get me there. Well, that won't get you there. You've got to get on board. And trusting Jesus is getting on board with him where you say, Lord, I believe that your death satisfied the wrath of God for my sins. I believe that you were raised from the dead as an authentication that God accepted that. But then there's a third question that you need to answer to move from spiritual blindness to sight, and that is very personal. Do I believe in him? Do I believe in him? Now, that is a question you should not take for granted because here you have the blind man. First of all, the blind man obeyed Jesus implicitly by going and washing. He could have said, man, get this mud off my face. I'm not going to that pool of Siloam, but he didn't. He went and he washed. So he's obeyed Jesus. He's also borne witness to these rather hostile Pharisees in a pretty, pretty strong manner. Uh, he's experienced a miracle in his life. And yet Jesus asks him this pointed question, do you believe in the Son of Man? And so, as I said, don't take the question for granted because many of us could say, well, I grew up in the church and I've always believed in Jesus. I mean, I was taught that as a child. Yeah, sure, I believe in Jesus. Or maybe you've had some dramatic experience with the Lord. Or maybe you say, well, you know, I've always tried to obey the Bible's teaching and to live a moral life, and that's fine. But that's not the question. That's not the question. In fact, maybe you've even preached the gospel to others. In, in a sermon by Spurgeon I was reading on this text, he uh, rather humorously mentions a man who was preaching, and he got saved preaching his own sermon. And in the middle of his sermon, somebody in the audience, in the congregation, who was a saved person, recognized the preachers changed. And so he shouted out, uh, the, the parsons converted, hallelujah. And the whole church erupted in praise, and they all stopped and sang the doxology. And the preacher admitted, yeah, I preached this for years, but I was never saved until today when the truth came home to him. So it's a, it's a very important question to ask and answer, do I personally believe in Jesus. Now, maybe you say yes, but then there's another question. How do you know your, your faith is genuine? Because we've already seen two or three instances in this gospel where people, quote, believed in Jesus, but it wasn't genuine belief. We saw it in chapter 2. Uh, we saw it again in chapter 6. Um, so, how do you know? Well, there are signs when your faith is, is genuine. Now, these aren't all of the ones in the New Testament. You can read the book of 1 John. It gives you signs. James gives you signs and so on. But with this former blind man, it reveals these signs. And that is, when you truly believe in Jesus, you gain spiritual sight. You always confess Jesus as Lord, and you bow before him in worship. He was blind, but now he saw. He got his sight. He, he confesses Jesus as best as he knows with these Pharisees. He doesn't even know yet who Jesus is. But um, as I mentioned in verse 38, I think it should be translated, Lord, I believe. Now he is confessing Jesus as Lord. And then he bows before him in worship. Now, 
scholars question, well, was his worship genuine worship at this point? Did he acknowledge Jesus as God? And Calvin and others say, well, he may not yet have understood the implications that Jesus was God in human flesh, but he was giving far more honor to Jesus than one would give to an ordinary man or even to a prophet. Um, Dr. Carson says that while it's not clear that he was yet addressing Jesus as my Lord and my God, as Thomas did after the resurrection, Carson says it is likely that he was offering obeisance to Jesus as the Redeemer from God, the Revealer of God. Now, the question is then, can you say with this blind man, one thing I know, whereas I was blind, now I see. In other words, God has brought you to a point where your eyes are open to the truth about Jesus. And then, do you openly confess Jesus as your Lord before others? And do you bow before Jesus in worship? Not just outwardly, but worship in spirit and in truth, as we saw in chapter 4. And I would add, not just on Sunday. It's good that we come and worship here. But you know, if this is the only time of the week you worship, our worship here is going to be kind of flat. you got to worship Him daily. Just meeting with Him in the Word and letting that wash over you and offering praises back to Him in prayer and in song. Now, I wish we could just close our Bibles and say, that's the end of that one. Let's go home. But the story doesn't end there. The Lord has more instruction to give us. And uh, it goes on to warn us that there are some people who think they see, but they don't really see. They're really blind. And so from moving from the blind see, we move to the seeing blind. And that's in verses 39 to 41, where we learn that Jesus came to bring those who think they see without him or apart from him, to bring them to judgment. And so the blind man illustrates people who progress, and we've seen him grow over this chapter in faith to where he confesses Jesus as his Lord and he bows before him in worship. But then we have the Pharisees who show us that there are some who regress in unbelief to the point that their hearts are hardened and they end up in judgment. Now, Jesus has already warned these Pharisees back in chapter 8, verse 21, verse 24, unless you believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins. So he has given them fair warning. And now he says to them in verse 39, for judgment I came into this world so that those who who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. And then they sarcastically retort, we're not blind too, are we? I think there's a lot of arrogance in that comment. And Jesus answers in verse 41, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Just three things here that I want to note brief, briefly note. First of all, If you want to stay in spiritual blindness, insist that you see, and that means you have no need for the Savior. It's the opposite of admitting you're blind that we saw on how to come to faith. The way to see is admit, Lord, I'm blind. I need you to open my eyes. The way to stay blind is to say, I can see pretty well, thanks. 
You know, maybe a little boosted help, but I'm okay. If you say that, Jesus says he's going to leave you in your blindness. It's the principle we see in the Bible. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if you arrogantly think, yeah, I got a wired man. I, I know I'm good enough to go to heaven. Not good. Not good. Secondly, to stay in spiritual blindness, then just reject the gift of sight that Jesus offers to you. I see verse 41 as a gracious offer on the part of our Lord to these hostile Pharisees. If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. I think what Jesus is saying there is, if you men would just admit your blindness, I'd heal you. I would heal you. I mean, that's what Jesus is in the business of doing, is opening blind eyes. But their stubborn rejection of Jesus keeps them in their sins. So rejecting the light that God graciously gives leads to further hardening and judgment. And that's the third thing to note here. The result of rejecting spiritual sight means that you're going to be hardened in unbelief and that will culminate in eternal judgment. There's this scary principle in the Bible. You can't be neutral to Jesus. When he gives you some sight, you have to respond. And if you don't respond, you don't stay neutral. You get hardened. You get hardened. He's going to confirm your rejection and leave you in spiritual blindness. And This isn't the only scripture that teaches that. In Matthew 13, the disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak to the people in parables? They don't get it. And Jesus replies in verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 13 by citing the prophecy of Isaiah 6-9. He says, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Uh, Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. And what that means is, the way you respond to the question, do you believe in the Son of Man, is huge. You can't respond neutrally. See, if you just shrug your shoulders and say, oh, I don't know, or I don't care, or "Ah, give me some time, I'll think about it later, you have made a bad decision. You're moving towards spiritual hardness of heart. And if you keep going that way, God eventually confirms you in that, And like Esau, who it says in Hebrews 12, he sought for repentance with tears, but he couldn't find it. He rejected God and rejected God and rejected God. And finally, when he wanted to find God, he couldn't find God. That's scary. It's a scary place to be. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, how can Jesus here say, for judgment I came into the world? Because you recall, back in John 3, 17... We read, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Uh, So how can he 
say here, for judgment I came into the world. Well, the answer to that is just keep reading in John 3, because it goes on and talks about judgment. Um, John 3, 18 and 19 says, He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds are evil. And so what it's saying is the primary reason Jesus came into the world wasn't to judge the world. It was to save the world. But that draws a line. If you're not believing in Jesus, you remain in judgment. The Son's main purpose isn't to cast shadows. It's to give light. But it is inevitable that when it gives light, it casts shadows. And the reason that Jesus came was not to condemn It was to save, but his very coming, if people reject him, means they will be condemned because they love their sin. They love the darkness. And so, to come back to where we started, Jesus is either incredibly good news or horrifying bad news for every person here. If you believe in Jesus this morning as your Savior and Lord, wow. It's the greatest news in the whole world. You have eternal life as a free gift. All of your sins are forgiven. And he promises that he won't lose any that the Father has given to him, as we saw in John 6. On the other hand, if you reject him, it's terrible bad news. And so, ponder the question, do you believe in the Son of Man? And I hope that all of us respond with the blind man of saying, Lord, I believe, and bowing before him in heartfelt worship. Father, I ask that you would work through your word this morning in hearts, that if there are those here who have never personally, truly put their trust in Jesus, you would open their blind eyes to see their precarious position, that they would admit that they are blind, that they would cry out to you for sight, and that you would graciously give them the gift of eternal life. I pray, Lord, that none would harden their hearts and walk away from Jesus, the light of the world. We ask that he would be glorified in his name. Amen.